Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are continuing our mock oral series with a focus on colorectal today. Dr. Sean Langenfeld, Assistant Professor of Surgery and Associate Program Director for the General Surgery Residency Program at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, will lead our two guest residents through some common board scenarios. Joining us are Jonathan Abelson, a fifth-year resident from the New York Hospital Weill Cornell Medicine Program, and Paul Johnson, another fifth-year from the Rutgers New Jersey Medical School Program. Both are pursuing colorectal fellowships. Thank you for volunteering, and good luck. Just a couple things to remind you about as we get started. I don't, I don't think uh, anybody's trying to trick you or intimidate you. It's actually counterproductive to intimidate people during this process because uh, it keeps me from being able to extract whether you know what you're doing or not. But you, your first patient is a 52-year-old male. He presents to your office complaining of a three-month history of rectal bleeding. Uh, upon further questioning, he states that uh, there's no pain associated with it. The blood is mixed with the stool. Um and his stools are otherwise normal. He doesn't have any past medical or surgical history. He doesn't take any medications, and he's adopted, so he doesn't know his family history. Okay, great. Um, so that's all the uh, history that I need. Um, uh, so I uh, proceed to a physical exam, um, focusing on the abdomen and doing an anal rectal exam. Okay. You do a head-to-toe physical exam, which is uh, the abdominal exam portion is normal. On digital exam, uh, you can palpate a circumferential mass about four centimeters above the anal verge. Uh, it appears partially obstructing, but you can pass your finger through it. Uh, otherwise, the exam is normal. Okay. Um, so at this point, uh, I have a concern for uh, rectal cancer. Um, so I'd want to proceed with getting a diagnosis. So I'd need to obtain a biopsy. Um, and so I would like to know if the patient has had a colonoscopy in the past or or recent biopsy? Uh, no, he's not had any colonoscopy or any other biopsies. Okay. So then my next step would be to arrange for uh, colonoscopy um, with biopsy to obtain a diagnosis. Okay. So you do that, and uh, you're able to pass the scope through the lesion and get to the cecum. Uh, you don't have any other abnormal findings, but you do find a large fungating mass uh, in the distal rectum. Biopsies are a bit of uh, which reveal adenocarcinoma. Okay, so now that I have a, a diagnosis, I want to um, stage the patient. Um, so as part of that, I want to get uh, blood work, including LFTs and a CEA, uh, as well as a CT chest, abdomen, pelvis with PO and IV contrast, um, followed by an MRI of the rectum. Okay. So the CEA is 10. The rest of his labs are normal. The CT of the chest, abdomen, pelvis is also normal, except they can also appreciate the distal mass and possibly an enlarged lymph node. The pelvic MRI shows that the mass invades through the muscularis with several one-centimeter lymph nodes suspicious for malignancy in the presacral space. Okay. So at this point, um, uh, clinical stage of uh, stage three, so this patient needs to be referred for neoadjuvant chemoradiation therapy. Uh, depending on his response, hopefully followed by potentially surgery. Tell me what you mean by chemoradiation therapy. What, what does that consist of? The patient is going to undergo 5-FU with leucoborin as well as um, radiation therapy uh, tar- targeting the pelvis um, over a, a four- to six-week period. Okay. And in what surgery are you planning to perform once that's completed? So once, he's, uh, once that's completed, then I'd want to repeat my uh, history and physical in the office um, and confirm my location of my uh, mass uh, as it re- pertains to the anal sphincters. And that will determine my operative approach. Uh, the mass is, uh, you know, it's, it's above the levators. It's mobile. Grossly, it appears to have shrunk quite a bit with uh, radiation therapy. You're examining, I guess, two weeks after therapy completes. Um, the rest of the exam is the same. Okay. Um, so in that case, I would have a, an extensive discussion with the patient regarding the risks and benefits of both um, a lower anterior resection as well as an abdominal perineal resection. Um, 
given the fact that I think that I can obtain a, a, at least a one centimeter margin, um, I would offer the patient a low anterior resection with a diverting loop ileostomy, um, uh, but counseling the patient that um, should I not be able to obtain that margin, then the patient would ultimately need an abdominal perineal resection, um, and also counsel the patient for the high risk of anastomotic leak, um, given the low, um, low position of the tumor. Okay. When do you want to do the surgery? So I'm going to wait about four to six weeks after he's finished his uh, chemo radiation. Okay. So you do the operation. Are you going to do it open or laparoscopic or robotic? We can do TATME. So the patient ultimately needs the, the best cancer operation they can with a TME resection or TME uh, procedure. Um, so I'll uh, start with a laparoscopic approach. Um, um, and so I'd start my dissection medial to lateral, adequate uh, length on my uh, proximal colon. I'm going to be anastomosing to my uh, rectum. Okay. So you do that. The patient does well. Um, goes home in four days. Final pathology reveals a T2N1 cancer. Um, he's back in your office and he goes, what, what next? Okay. Um, so this patient's going to need adjuvant chemotherapy. Um, as I mentioned before, I would have given the patient a diverting loop ileostomy, and so I'm going to defer um, uh, defer reversal of the ileostomy until uh, chemotherapy uh, is finished. Um, um, and then at that point, the patient will be seen again in my office for uh, possible ileostomy reversal. Okay. So you do all those things. He does well with chemo. He does well with your ileostomy reversal. And uh, how do you plan to follow this patient in the long term after you've done this uh, surgery with curative intent? So I need to see the patient in clinic for follow-up um, every three to six months uh, for the first two years. I would need to get a repeat colonoscopy within a year, following the patient also with CEAs roughly every six months. Um, uh, that would be my initial approach. Okay. Um, let's change the scenario. Let's say that when this patient initially presented to you, instead of having a tumor that invaded through the muscularis with suspicious lymph nodes, the tumor was uh, combined, confined to the submucosa and uh, had no suspicious lymph nodes. Okay. Um, and what's the size of the lesion and what circumference of the bowel wall does it incorporate? Well, actually, I said submucosa is my own fault for only half my attention. It goes through the submucosa into the muscularis. It's a circular lesion, uh, same one as before. Okay. Um, so, so the difference in this case being I don't have um, I don't have concern for positive lymph nodes. Yeah. Um, and so, um, uh, and instead of a you know T three T four lesion, I'm concerned more with a T two lesion. Um, and so in this case, uh, I could offer the patient an upfront surgery um, as opposed to subjecting them to neoadjuvant chemoradiation therapy. Okay. Now, what would you do if instead of all this, go back in time, presents to your office, he has this circumferential non-obstructing lesion, and he also presents with widespread bilobar liver metastasis? How do you treat that patient? Okay. Um, so, you know, this patient, uh, by definition, has uh, stage 4 disease, and so is going to need uh, systemic chemotherapy. The concern that I would have in this case is whether this patient is going to uh, obstruct and, and therefore not be able to proceed with uh, chemotherapy due to obstruction. Um, so, you know, based on my, um, my colonoscopy, I want to see how close I feel he is to obstructing. If I feel that he is close to obstructing, um, that I would offer the patient um, uh, diverting stoma uh, so that they can complete successfully complete chemotherapy. What sort of diverting stoma do you mean? Uh, so I would do a um, diverting colostomy. Uh, end colostomy, loop colostomy? Um, I would do a um, diverting loop colostomy. Okay. Well, that's the end of the scenario. I probably, I, I ran it long intentionally just to help you sweat a little bit. I think you did a really good job overall. Um, overall assessment is that that's a, that's a passing exam, if that makes sense. Um, there's three, three categories, pass, fail, and in the middle is equivocal. And uh, to me, that's a clear pass. 
I was pretty happy with your performance. Just some tips. Um, you were very linear. No problems there. Your speed was good. Uh, you didn't dwell on the history and physical, which I appreciate. They won't let you dwell either on the actual exam. People typically don't wait four to six weeks. That's a pretty short interval after uh, chemo radiation. A more common interval is in the old days was six to eight weeks. And, and now in more modern days, it's more like eight to 12 weeks. It, with the exception of if you had, for instance, a threatened margin where you might go a little bit longer than 12 weeks, even up to 16. Uh, describe the operation. I, I didn't actually ask you to do that, so that might count as volunteering information. You did mention that you do a high ligation of the IMB. That's correct, and it's good for, to have good reach down to the pelvis, but from an oncologic perspective, the intermesenteric artery ligation is what needs to be high in order to be oncologically sound operation. The surveillance that you recommended is fine every three to six months. I would look at whichever guidelines you subscribe to and have a little tighter response on that. Uh, an example would be physical exam with CEA every three months for the first two years and every six months for the next three. Colonoscopies once a year, on your one-year anniversary and then three years after that and then every five years and then CAT scan once a year. The other thing to keep in mind for people that have had uh, low anterior section is they need a local exam once every six months to assess for local recurrence. Uh, that may eventually go away, as I think a lot of those recommendations came up before people were doing good uh, mesorectal excisions, but that being said, that's still the recommendation. I wouldn't say you could do X, Y, Z. I would just say what you were going to do. And if they're obstructing, uh, I think a loop colostomy is the best way to go. Palliative pelvic surgery, where you go down and actually remove the tumor, is very rarely a good idea. Um, and so uh, diversion is better. If you'd use a loop ileostomy and they have a competent ileocecal valve, hypothetically, they could still get a large bowel obstruction. And then if you do an end colostomy instead of a loop, you could get a large bowel obstruction, a closed loop obstruction above the, uh, above the tumor. So anyway, I think you did a good job. This is the next patient. You have an 83-year-old male who presents uh, to the ER from the nursing home with severe abdominal distension. Call down to the ER to evaluate. Uh, when you get there, you find that the patient uh, has a past medical history of heart disease, hypertension, atrial fibrillation, and diabetes. The only surgical history is bilateral inguinal hernia repair. Medications include aspirin, uh, warfarin, metformin, and metoprolol. And uh, and that's all the information you're able to get. Family history and social history is sort of non-contributory. Okay. So, I got a pretty much all the history that I need as well. So, I would first see how his vitals are. Is he currently stable? Yes, he is stable. Pulse is 70. Blood pressure is 130 over 90. Respiratory rate is 20. And pulse ox is 99% of him there. Great. So, at this time, I would send off a full set of labs, CMP, CBC, as well as including a lactate as well. Okay. So, you do that and... Uh, the lactate is normal, CMP is normal, CBC is normal, the white blood cell count is 10. Okay, great. So at this point, I'm concerned for possibly an um, embolic event uh, due to its history of AFib. So I would send him down for a CT uh, angio of the uh, abdomen. CT angiogram, okay. So you do that, and uh, when you get down there, what you find is that... Uh, there's no embolic event. Uh, the patient has a large distended colon with swirling in the mesentery consistent with uh, uh, sigmoid volvulus. Okay. So at that time, I would um, talk to the patient um, sigmoid using uh, endoscopic uh, means. And then I would tell, also counsel him that if this was unsuccessful, he would need an operation. Okay. Try to describe for me in detail how you'd go about endoscopically detorsing the sigmoid. Okay, so I would um, advance the scope through the uh, rectum and attempt to insert. What kind of scope? Um, oh, a regular colonoscope. Okay. Um, with and then as I was insufflating, I would uh, see if the mucosa would start to detours uh, through gentle um, insufflation. Okay. And if you're successful in detorsing it, 
if I was successful uh, while I was detoursing, I would leave a rectal tube and then um, have that in place for at least two days um, and watch for a return of bowel function or any worsening um, abdominal exam. Okay. So uh, describe for me what you mean by a rectal tube. Where, where is this tube going to lie and what would you use? So I would pass it um, during my colonoscopy. I would uh, lay the tube in the uh, in the descending colon um, and under direct visualization. Okay, so you do that. And uh, in the process, the patient's colon decompresses. Uh, the patient uh, is doing well. It's resuscitated. Uh, you reverse the INR. It's been a couple days. Now, do you, what do you want to do with this patient? Um, if he's currently doing well, I would um, be able, to, and he's tolerating diet and everything's well, his abdominal exam is fine, and uh, I was confirmed that the um, colon is successfully detoured through um, radiographic imaging. If all those things are in place, I would have him come back electively for um, a sigmoidectomy. So, uh, you send him out, uh, and about 48 hours later, he presents with the same symptoms. You find yourself doing the same thing. You detorse him again. Now he's resuscitated again, and you're afraid to send him back home because you're afraid the same thing's going to happen again. All right. So I would counsel the patient that I think the risk and uh, versus the benefits would are now weighing in the um, the favor of taking him directly to the operating room, um, and then I would tell him. He should still be reversed based on our, um, and if not, he would his INR would have to be again reversed. He would be optimized as uh, best possible, um, seeing that he's temporized with the detorsion and rectal tube again. Make sure that he's medically optimized, and uh, once that's complete, I would take him for a lap sigmoid. Lap sigmoid. Okay. Are you going to do an anastomosis? Um, based. On his, uh, I would have to base it on his function, his current status. So if his albumin is appropriate and he's been otherwise healthy, I would attempt the primary anastomosis. Okay. Well, he is, and you do it. Um, let's change the scenario for a minute, and let's pretend that instead of presenting with sort of benign findings initially, he comes in with a rigid abdomen white blood cell count is 17 and he's got diffuse tenderness. Um, if he has a rigid abdomen, um, I would take him directly to the OR and um, bypass the detorsion. I would also make sure that, of course, he was uh, reversed and uh, quickly reversed and then um, hanging FFP probably on the way to the OR. Um, other than that, um, I would for him, since it's more critical, um, and he might be on pressors, plus or minus, I would consider it a proximal diversion. Okay. Just while we're changing scenarios, let's pretend that this patient, uh, same patient, same medical problems, but uh, presents uh, to the emergency room with the sequel volvulus, and the INR this time is normal. Um, what do you do for somebody with the sequel volvulus? So, cecobalbulus is a little different. It's not as easy to detours. So, um, for him, he would uh, go for a right hemi. And do you do an astomosis in that condition? Um, if he, again, if he was stable, like uh, in the last case, I would probably uh, do a primary anastomosis as well. As long as, it, depending on how distended the bowel is as well. Okay. So, that's the end of that theory. Okay. I think you did a good job overall. Your fund of knowledge is, is there. You have everything, uh, I think, that you need to pass this scenario. I think you're somewhere between a pass and an equivocal. You skip the physical exam uh, during the, the initial workup. You know, keep in mind, though, that, you know, for the most part, they're trying to give you all that and get you to management. So I don't think they're going to try to catch you up in that. But that that's a concern, skipping that. Did not check an INR initially. Uh I would probably be a little more specific with your decisions about what to do and use formal language. And so 
what I mean by that is to say I'd probably take him to for endoscopy for detorsion. I would do you say I would do colonoscopy with endoscopic detorsion and placement of the rectal tube. Uh, or instead of saying I'd do a lap sigmoid, I'd say I'd do a laparoscopic sigmoid colectomy. Instead of saying a right hemi, I'd say right hemi colectomy. Things like that, um, just so you come off appropriately formal for the environment. Um, you know, some uh, judgment things. I would say that. Most of these patients, if you send them home, they're going to retorse. Matter of fact, the retorsion rate in the short term can be as high as 50%. And so most of the time, the patient's not going to go home and come back for their colectomy. Uh, and so often they will kind of say, okay, you send them home because the same thing happened. Uh, while After you decompress the patient, when you talk about medical optimization, some things that that might specifically entail is making sure he's fit for pelvic op- or fit for abdominal operation, make sure he's had a recent colonoscopy and doesn't need a colonoscopy prior to surgery to make sure you don't have like a whatever, you know, it's an 80, uh, three-year-old guy, you could have a sequel cancer for all you know uh, that's incidentally found. And then um, when you were in extremis, you said you'd bypass the torsion. I think you should be more specific that you would actually excise the torsion rather than, you know, when you say bypass the torsion, it's insinuating that you're almost leaving the dead uh, sigmoid in there. Um, otherwise, that was a good job. Uh, pretty common scenario. I will tell you uh, that uh, historically, that's a common question that's asked. So it's good to get to know it. Sequel volume is less often, but you handled that just fine. Jonathan, are you ready for around? Yeah. Okay, great. You have a patient, 58 year old female, who presents to your office complaining of uh, fever, nausea, and abdominal pain. She says the pain started about two days ago, it's been gradual onset localized to her left side. It's constant. She's nauseated, no emesis. Last bowel was a couple days ago, which is normal. Past milk history is negative. She has a history of hysterectomy uh, surgically. Family history is negative for anything significant. She doesn't take any medications. Um, so uh, I would start with my physical exam, obtaining uh, vital signs in my office, uh, and then doing a abdominal exam and anal rectal exam. Okay, so you do that, and uh, she's got localized pain in the left lower quadrant as well as some suprapubic tenderness. There's some guarding just in those areas, but uh, there's no guarding elsewhere, and there's no rebound. Okay, and for my vital signs, is she tachycardic or hypotensive? Heart rate's about 100. Blood pressure's normal. Other vital signs are normal. Okay, and then for my um, um, rectal exam, um, any obstruction or guaiac positive? Rectal exam is normal. Um, so at this point, uh, I'm concerned that the patient has an episode of diverticulitis, um, and so I'd want to obtain uh, blood work as well as a CAT scan, CT and then post with PO and IV contrast. Um, the blood work I could likely send off in my office, but the CAT scan I'd want to have on a more uh, urgent basis, and so in order to obtain that, I'd likely send the patient to the emergency department for that. Okay. So she goes to the emergency room um, at the same facility that where you have your office. And uh, there, the white blood cell count is 17. Uh, every other lab is normal. CT abdomen pelvis does show sigmoid diverticulitis. There's a small amount of pericolonic free air, and she has a 5-centimeter pelvic abscess. Okay. So I would, again, uh, assess the patient after um, uh, uh, she's gotten the CAT scan and with some resuscitation and do a repeat abdominal uh, exam. It's the same. Uh, so at this point, I would counsel the patient on uh, the findings um, and discuss the options, uh, which would be either um, uh, taking the patient for uh, uh, an operation or, or uh, performing a percutaneous uh, drainage of the abscess. Um, given the fact that um, she does have an element of um, uh, air associated with that, I would take the patient uh, to the operating room. Okay. Let's say there wasn't those few specs of free air around the perforated colon, then what would you do? In that case, I would feel a little bit more comfortable with um, uh, consulting interventional radiology colleagues and asking them to um, drain the uh, abscess um, and, and monitoring her from there. Okay. So you do that. They drain the abscess. It, uh, it has purulent discharge. Patient recovers well. You bring her to the hospital for a few days. She goes home four days later, and now she's back in your office. Um, she's still got the drain in. 
and she wants to know what you want to do next. Okay. Um, so uh, this patient's going to need a colonoscopy um, about six weeks after this episode, assuming that she continues to feel well. Uh, I would want to obtain a repeat CAT scan prior to uh, performing that colonoscopy to ensure that uh, inflammation has decreased. Um, and then with respect to the drain, uh, once the drain output is minimal, less than 20 cc's per day, and it's cleared up, then I would feel comfortable with uh, removing the drain. Uh, I didn't mention this before, but I would also have had the patient on antibiotics. Okay. Uh, to cover the um, cover her abscesses. Okay. So uh, you do that. The drain comes out. Colonoscopy shows diverticulosis uh, throughout the entire colon, uh, including the right side, the transverse colon. Uh, it's otherwise normal. There's no masses or other findings. Okay. Um, so in that case, uh, I would counsel the patient that um, uh, she did have an episode of complicated diverticulitis, and so... Um, Given that, I think she'd have be at a high rate of recurrence, and so I'd offer her an elective um, sigmoidectomy. Okay. Is that something that you perform open or laparoscopically? Uh, so in my hands, I would perform an open uh, sigmoidectomy. Okay. Does the patient get an anastomosis? Um, depending on the uh, level of inflammation at this point, um, my, my intention would be to do it under um, less acute uh, setting. And so uh, if the tissue appears... Healthy, then I would perform a primary anastomosis. Um, so you're doing your operation uh, open, and despite your best efforts, you transect the ureter on the left side at the level of the pelvic brim. Um, it's done with cautery. You identify it right away. Um, what do you want to do now? Um, so I would um, place an intraoperative consult to the urology service um, for assistance. Um, um, but my overall plan would be um, to debris the edges of the um, ureter and attempt a, a, a reimplantation into the bladder if I'm able to obtain sufficient length. Okay. Uh, let's just back up and uh, change the scenario to a patient that instead of having localized tenderness and an abscess, you have a patient that comes in with diffuse abdominal pain and peritonitis. You take that patient to the operating room and you find you know, perforated diverticulitis with fecalant peritonitis. What operation would you do for that patient? Um, so this patient, if I can resect the, um, uh, the disease bowel, then I would perform a resection and then a um, Hartman's, uh, um, uh, Hartman's pouch. Okay. All right, we're done uh, with that scenario. I think you did a good job. Uh, I would give you a clear pass. The diverticulitis questions come up a lot, and I think that the examiners can often change it to whatever they want it to be, whether it's a stable patient or a septic patient, whether they've got peritonitis or localized tenderness. And so you have to be able to sort of respond to what they give you. I think what I was giving you there was a very stable patient with stable vitals, and uh, I, I wouldn't be too deterred by the pericolonic free air. Um, that is something that does not require a sigmoid colectomy uh, acutely. You know, you're, you're treating the patient, but they got a reliable exam, localized tenderness, they don't need an operation. When you go in there acutely, very frequently the patient does require Hartman's, which as you guys know, it's a very morbid operation. It's very hard to reverse later. A lot of people end up with a permanent bag, uh, as opposed to if you're able to cool them off and drain the pus and exclude malignancy, you can come back later and do an elective laparoscopic operation with the primary anastomosis. I agree with you calling urology into the room. I think in the old days, people would always say something like, oh, you can't ask for help, but realistically, you know, how many ureteral reimplantations have you done? And then uh, at that level, uh, I mean, I guess outside of transplant, you've probably done a few, but at that level, at the pelvic brim, you're absolutely right. Reimplantation of the bladder is good. You can say Harman's procedure. It's a well uh, kind of accepted eponym, but I think that the uh, probably saying I would do a resection within colostomy is a little more specific. So otherwise, good job. If we had uh, more time, we could talk about, you know, how many uh, – uncomplicated cases prior to an elective resection, et cetera, but I don't think it fits the scenario very well. What questions do you have?
So yeah, in that case, um, you know, you would you would have offered the um, sigmoidectomy uh, after she recovered from her perforation. I would. I think that over time we're finding that complicated diverticulitis is a very mixed bag. People that have ongoing symptoms like fistula or obstruction or something along that line, it's, it's a little easier to make the decision to operate. When they had a pelvic abscess and it's drained and it gets better, um, certainly those patients are at increased risk of having uh, subsequent complicated attacks, but the risk of progressing to like uncontrolled sepsis in a Hartman's procedure or emergency surgery is, is lower than we thought. So doing surgery with the intent of preventing some sort of future hypothetical emergency, probably not necessary. But uh, in general, it's still uh, I recommend that they undergo colectomy. Ask me again in 10 years, though, and I might give you a different answer. Okay. We'll do the next case. You have a 73-year-old woman who presents to the emergency room with severe left-sided abdominal pain and hematochesia. She reports a three-day history of worsening abdominal pain. She started having bloody diarrhea this morning. She's never had anything like this before. She does have a history of heart disease as well as peripheral arterial disease and atrial fibrillation. She has left lower extremity arterial stent, no other surgical history. Medications include aspirin, warfarin, metoprolol, and atorvastatin. Okay. So, thank you for the history. I, I would begin by uh, doing a physical examination and also getting vital signs. So, um, vitals are completely normal. Heart rate is 90. Blood pressure is 130. Open rate is uh, 15. Uh, on exam, she has a regular heart rate, regular, not irregular. Uh, she had localized left lower quadrant pain with some guarding there. She does have a lot of pain there, but uh, there's no rebound. Any blood on my left hand? Yes. You, if you do a digital exam, you do find some bright red blood. Okay. So um, I would start with resuscitation, make sure she has uh, two large bodies. And then I would start giving her uh, give her a liter of uh, LR. In the meantime, I would send off some labs, make sure she has a CBC, CMP, lactate, okay. OX, an EKG, and then a type and cross. Okay, so you do that. And uh, the white blood cell count is 14. Hemoglobin is 11. INR 2.2. Basic metabolic panel is normal with the exception that the BON is 30 and the creatinine is, is 1.5. EKG shows uh, sinus rhythm. And you said anything up? Lactate is normal. Okay, and then I would also set up like uh, um, stool cultures and a C dip just to make sure there's no infectious colitis. Those are uh, pending uh, as she's sitting in the ER, but did you say you wanted to get a CT of the abdomen and pelvis? Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, so you get that. And that showed thickening of the splenic flexure and descending colon, as well as uh, possibly some pneumatosis in the descending colon wall. There's no free interperitoneal air. There's no other abnormalities. Okay. At this time, I'm concerned for a, a possible ischemic colitis. Um, I would also reverse her. At this point, I would reverse her INR to make sure to decrease her bleeding risk. And then I would continue conservative care with um, hydration, um, antibiotics as well to cover gut flora and um, just supportive management. Okay. So you do that and she gets better. Um, the pain goes away, the white blood cell count goes down, the hematochesia resolves. When are you going to feed her? Um, so as soon as her, she never really had a white count, but as soon as her abdominal pain is uh, subsided and she starts having a return of bowel function, I would start diet. Okay. And after she's kind of recovered from this episode, she's back in your office, she feels better. She says, what next for me? At this point, I would uh, really try and ascertain the reasons that... Um, she might be having this episode of ischemic colitis. Um, I would also counsel her to see if she's ever had a colonoscopy, she would need one now that the um, acute phase has uh, passed. What are some reasons that people get ischemic colitis? Um, so risk include like um, age, being female, um, heart disease as a main one. Um, times, a lot of patients we see have, um, like if they're on pressors, 
Okay. And, uh, what are some other causes besides ischemic colitis of left-sided colitis like this, localized to the splenic flexure and descending colon? Um, it's a watershed area, so it's a lot of times dehydration is also a cause. That's the end of that scenario. Uh, you know, things we could do if we wanted to we could change the scenario to have patients perforated, but I think we know that you be able to resect and possibly do a colostomy with that. I would call that a clear pass. I think you passed that scenario. Um, resuscitation was good. The reversing the INR was good at presentation. You stayed linear, uh, did not skip the physical exam this time. Um, Something to keep in mind on these patients is they've got a lot of red herrings at baseline because, you know, she's got a lot of medical problems. And so talking about AFib and peripheral arterial disease are kind of red herrings, you know, that probably be a bigger risk for mesenteric ischemia, which is interruption of the small bowel blood supply that often requires surgery and is a completely different entity compared to ischemic colitis, which is kind of a microvascular problem that happens to watershed areas. So I think you manage that well. Um... I agree with giving the patient IV fluids, antibiotics, and bowel rest. Um, and so all of those you did very well on. Something to keep in mind, colonoscopy, I agree. The main reason for colonoscopy, in addition to just if she needs one anyways, is to make sure you have the correct diagnosis. You know, ischemic colitis is a reversible thing, but if the patient has another form of colitis, which I was trying to get you walking on the road, things like IBD, uh, Diverticulitis, infection, etc. You know, then then that would be that would be something you could identify with colonoscopy. They very rarely require an operation. They wouldn't be deterred by pneumatosis in the wall. They frequently do have pneumatosis. As far as causes, I agree with you 100. percent I think a lot of times it's it's uh, the body being smart. You know, you have um, a stress somewhere else in the body, and maybe either dehydrate as well. And the body says, "I'm going to sh- shunt all the." attention to the liver and the brain and the, and the colon gets left out. And so uh, people are dehydrated, marathon runners and so forth. And women can get it, uh, you know, little old ladies can get it even just from a urinary tract infection or something like that as well. So we switch over to Jonathan. Jonathan, you ready? Yeah. Your patient is a 72-year-old man. He presents to the emergency room with new onset hematochesia. He was in his normal state of health until this morning. We experienced four loose bloody bowel movements. Uh, doesn't have any abdominal pain, doesn't have any recent changes in routine. The activity is somewhat limited. He's got bilateral knee and shoulder pain. He takes a lot of the leave for that. He occasionally has blood in the toilet paper. Otherwise, he had nothing like this before. Last colonoscopy was eight years ago, which showed a single benign polyp. Then he also had sigmoid diverticulosis. He has a past medical history of heart disease, hypertension, atrial fibrillation, and osteoarthritis. Medical history includes, uh, med- medications include metoprolol, aspirin, warfarin, naproxen, and then socially, he drinks about four to six beers a day uh, that he'll admit to you, smokes a half pack a day, and uh, uh, otherwise family history is non-contributory. Okay, um, so I would start with the physical exam, and as I'm doing that, I would ensure that the patient has two large bore IVs and is getting resuscitation. So my physical exam focused on the, the vital signs, my abdominal exam, and then um, uh, rectal exam. Okay. So temperature 98, blood pressure is 90 over 60, pulse is 120, respiratory rate is 18, pulse oxygen 98% of room air. The abdominal exam is normal. Uh, on digital rectal exam, you don't identify any masses or anything, but he does have um, some bright red blood that you can appreciate. Okay. On my external exam, do I see any hemorrhoids? No. Okay. Um, so, uh, uh, I would make sure that my resuscitation is ongoing. Uh, I'd place a Foley catheter, um, and I would, um, want to drop an NG tube and assess the return and make sure it's bilious and not bloody. Okay. And it's not what you do see, but. Okay. Um, and so as I'm, uh, doing my workup, I, um, uh, I'm gonna. I know that I'm gonna want to send this patient to the ICU. Um, so I'm gonna um, be in touch with my critical care colleagues to facilitate that as I'm uh, proceeding. Um, my uh, workup at this point uh, is gonna proceed with resuscitation and see his uh, response to that. Um, and, and as I'm doing that, I'm gonna get um, a full set of labs, including uh, coags for his warfarin use um, and typing cross. Okay. 
Uh, so white blood cell count is normal. Hemoglobin is 7.2. Platelets 250. The INR is 6.2. The comprehensive metabolic panel and lipase are normal. Okay. Um, so this patient needs to have his um, warfarin uh, reversed. Um, so I'm going to give the patient FFP um, uh, as well as transfuse the patient um, uh, one unit pack red blood cells uh, for his hemoglobin of 7.2. Um, and assess his response in terms of his vital signs after I've initiated that resuscitation. You do that. He seems to be responsive to the blood. Um, you recheck his hemoglobin at 7.2 again. So you, what do you want to do then? So um, this patient needs um, uh, uh, gulps. So the patient needs upper endoscopy as well as a, a colonoscopy. Um, so I would start my uh, prep if um, um, if he'll tolerate that and not uh, develop um, unstable vital signs. Well, unfortunately, he is kind of, of getting a little bit unstable. He'll translate respond when you give him blood, and you do get his INR down to 1.3. However, he continues to have bright red bloody bowel movements. Now he's received eight units of blood. His tachycardia persists. Blood pressure is about 80 over 40. Okay. Um, so unfortunately, I... Uh, I don't want to send an unstable patient for um, diagnostic imaging, um, and he's already received rid of four um, units of red blood cells over a 24-hour period, so I'm concerned that this patient needs an emergent operation. Um, so I would talk with the patient extensively regarding the risks and benefits of um, forming a, a, a colectomy, especially considering I haven't been able to localize the, the source of his bleeding. So you want to take him to the operating room. Describe for me uh, briefly what operation you want to do for this patient. Um, so given his history, I'm concerned that he has a diverticular bleed, uh, which would be more, more common on the left side. However, I don't know his exact location. So in this case, uh, he would need to have a subtotal colectomy. I would need to assess the small bowel and see if there's any evidence of, of blood in the small bowel um, uh, prior to going straight to a, a subtotal colectomy. Okay. So the colon is full of blood in the operating room, but there's no blood in the small bowel. You do your subtotal. What does the subtotal colectomy mean? What's the distal extent of that resection? Um, so I'm going to go to the um, uh, peritoneal reflection um, uh, and do an iliorectal, basically the um, rectum as it's um, at the peritoneal reflection. And then do an iliorectal anastomosis, you said? So, yeah, I guess depending on uh, the patient's vital signs at this point in the operation, um, is he hypotensive and on pressors? Yes. Okay, so in that case, I would not, um, uh, I would not anastomose, and I would do a, a proximal diversion. Okay. Um, so let's change the scenario a little bit. Let's make the patient start out the same, but this time you're able to give him a couple units of blood and, and stabilize him out. Your versus INR, hemoglobin's hanging out around 9.10, but then he, he continues to have intermittent kind of ongoing hematochesia and transfusion requirements. Uh, he's no longer in the ICU, but you have over the course of a couple of days given him, you know, six, seven units of blood. Okay. Uh, so in this case, if the patient's stable, then I would want to... Um, uh be able to localize the source of bleeding. Um, so I would want to obtain a colonoscopy if I can obtain a prep. Okay. So you do the prep. You're just fine with that. You do the colonoscopy. And you see a little bit of blood scattered through the colon, um, but otherwise not able to identify a source. Um, okay. The next day he bleeds a little bit more. Requires another unit of blood. Okay. So... Um, if the patient continues to be stable, I would arrange for a tagged red blood cell scan uh, to try and localize the source of bleeding. Okay. And let's say that you find that he is uh, tagged red blood cell scan localizes it to the right colon. Okay. Okay. So in that case, um, I would um, try and arrange for uh, angiography to try and um, localize the bleeding vessel. Um, and see if this can be um, further characterized in terms of um, uh, whether or not this is, represents an AVM um, uh, or something that could be uh, amenable to interventional uh, radiology approach. Okay. All right, that's the end of the scenario. Uh, I would say that you passed the scenario.
the important things here that you touched upon but can't be overlooked is that if you have a patient that's bleeding significantly, he's in the you know emergency room and he is hypotensive, then you start with the ABCs just like you did. And then you make sure he's in the right scenario or in the right location for your ongoing uh, evaluation, which would be the intensive care unit. I like that you started resuscitation and that you re- reversed his INR because that's the most important thing. And then whenever somebody has a lower GI bleed, the first step is always to exclude an upper GI bleed. And you did a good job with that. But I just have to mention for listeners that if you pass an NG tube, you're, you're looking to make sure that there's bile and no blood. If somebody has a brisk upper GI bleed, they'll have hematochesia and they'll bleed to death while you're getting your whatever colonoscopy prep done or something like that. And so um, if you put an NG in and you don't get back bile or blood, then the patient still needs an EGD because if they have a large duodenal ulcer, that can cause spasm of the pylorus and you could be bleeding profusely and really not have any return from the stomach. And so that's why uh, he mentioned the bile and no blood. Uh, once you have a patient and you're starting to resuscitate him and you're giving them the uh, blood, the, the threshold for the operating room is sort of arbitrary. You mentioned four units. I don't know. I, I wouldn't take anybody to the operating room with four units uh, personally. I think that uh, how many units to give is arbitrary, right? You gave one, somebody else might give four right up front, you know, and so how do you know? Uh, what? There's no magic number. Uh, I would say that probably giving one unit initially in the scenarios. Uh, under resuscitating the patient that is ongoing bleeding, I probably would have given a little bit more. Uh, but when, you ha- when you're forced to the operating room without a localized area of bleeding, you did the absolute right thing, which is a total colectomy. Um, if you say that you would take the colon down to the peritoneal reflection, you know, the peritoneal reflection is deep in the pelvis, about anywhere between four and eight centimeters above the in verge, depending on the patients. That's pretty low. I'm sure you probably made the sacral promontory, but you're not alone in saying that that's what people did. Um, that'd be a total colectomy, total abdominal colectomy. I would not do an ileorectal anastomosis in, in the background of ongoing bleeding with unlocalized bleeding because you have a patient that uh, is most likely very unstable in that environment. If you didn't do a good job of Excluding upper GI bleed, sometimes the examiner will take you down that road, let you make your ileostomy, and they'll say that the next day the patient's bleeding profusely out of the ileostomy. So not for you. You did okay with that. Um, Now, on the other hand, if you have kind of a slower bleed, um, depending on who you ask and which textbook you read or which uh, practice parameters you read, the order of events is different for everybody. Uh, but as far as whether the patient should have an immediate colonoscopy or an immediate tag scan, or probably more likely these days a CT angiogram because they're getting so good, uh, depends on who you ask. There's still some people who believe colonoscopy should be first. Uh, personally, I don't think you can find a whole lot with that uh, up front. Um, they say blood to cathartic, and so it's going to clean out the colon. But in general, if you don't prep the patient, you can't see much of anything with colonoscopy. And if you do prep them, a lot of times it's slow enough bleed, but you won't catch it. But if you do catch it with CT angiogram or tag scan, you're absolutely right that angioembolization is a wonderful tool. Uh, when I was training, it was very frowned upon because you kill the colon, but the colon's pretty resilient and it, it doesn't die from angioembolization almost ever. So, good job. What questions do you have on that scenario? So, I guess, you know, I, I, I didn't do an anastomosis. I guess the other option is to do the anastomosis but still divert proximally. Does either one of those answers sound, you know, better in this scenario? No, I think you did the right thing. I wouldn't do uh, in a patient that's you know has ongoing hemorrhage and has a blood pressure eighty over forty. You're taking him to the OR. He's got a colon full of blood. And the safest thing to do is to get rid of the source and get him back to the ICU for further resuscitation. And messing around with an anastomosis and a loop ileostomy upstream from that is probably not the best answer. Okay, we're on to the final uh, scenario. This patient is a 63-year-old male who has undergone a laparoscopic sigmoid colectomy on your service for colon cancer. On post-operative day number three, uh, while you're covering for your partner who did the operation, the nurse calls you and reports a fever of 102 Fahrenheit as well as new-onset tachycardia. Um, So I'll go assess the patient. and I'll need to uh, perform a physical exam and also get a baseline vital. 
So you get baseline vitals. Tempest 102, pulse is 120, rest rate is 25. He's got a pulse oximetry of 94% of room air. The physical exam, uh, head to toe outside of the abdomen is normal, but the abdomen is distended. Um, he's got diffuse tenderness, and he's got guarding in his left lower quadrant. Um, so I'm going to send off a full set of labs, um, CBC, CMP, um, coags, and then also lactate. Okay. Lactate is normal. Coagulation factors are normal. CMP is normal. The white blood cell count is 16. It was 12 yesterday. Um, the remainder of the labs are normal. Um, can you repeat when his uh, signal is? Uh, Surgery was three days ago. Okay. Um, I would make sure that he has um, IV access and start resuscitating him. Um, and also give him some, uh, uh, make him MPO and then possibly, and send him down for CT of the abdomen pelvis concerning for early leak. So you do a CT. What sort of contrast do you want with that? Um, I will do PO and IV. Okay. So CT is done. And it does show um, small amount of free air. And there's some free fluid in the pelvis as, as well, with a couple of free air there. Okay. Um, is there any uh, free air around the anastomosis, or any localized air around the anastomosis, or any signs of uh, concern, extravasation of oral contrast? There's no extravasation of oral contrast. Uh, it does not reach the anastomosis, uh, but there is uh, a little bit of free air around the anastomosis as well. It's mostly in the anterior abdomen. Um, at this point, um, I would start the patient on antibiotics, and I'm concerned for early leak. And uh, with those findings, I would... Uh, talk to the patient about um, just going back in and uh, examining the anastomosis to make sure there's no, uh, no free, uh, no leak. How do you want to examine the anastomosis? So I would, uh, re he, uh, can you repeat the method of which he did the surgery? It was a, it was a laparoscopic sigmoidectomy. They did a stapled colorectal anastomosis with a EEA 29 millimeter stapler. Okay, so I would go back. I would uh, go back into the abdomen um, laparoscopically and uh, just inspect the anastomosis to make sure that there's no um, signs of leak. And okay. I find it. Uh, so you explore the patient uh, laparoscopically. You find some purulence uh, in the pelvis, and when you inspect the anastomosis, you find that there's a. Uh, greater than 50% disruption of the anastomosis with a little bit of stool leaking into the abdomen as well. Okay, at that point, I would um, convert to open and I would um, resect the anastomosis and then uh, do a proximal um, proximal diversion. What do you mean by proximal diversion? Um, I would give him a uh, transverse uh, and transverse Colostomy. And and so what do you so if you do an end transverse colostomy, what are you going to do with the descending colon that was previously anastomosed? Oh, I'm, I resect the anastomosis stapled, and so the distal limb is a blind patch, almost like a herb. Okay. Uh, so that patient gets better. Let's change the scenario, and this time instead of having all these problems in uh, uh, the first few days after the operation, it's more like seven days out. He's having fevers and localized tenderness. White count goes up to 16. You do a CT scan on him, and there's uh, no free air, but there's a uh, five-centimeter abscess at the level of the anastomosis. And you, and you can see a little bit of air in the abscess. What would you do for that patient? Um, and you said, can you repeat his vitals? Vitals are stable. Temperature is 120. Abdomen shows uh, guarding left lower quadrant localized tenderness. Okay. Um, 
in this patient, um, if it's a smoldering leak, uh, it can be managed uh, non-operatively and you can do an IR drainage of the abs pericolonic abscess with uh, bile rest, hopefully that it will seal over. Okay. And I will also, yeah. How long, how long is the patient bile rest? Um, I would do approximately uh, five days um, and then repeat the oral contrast. I would uh, repeat the oral contrast and allow it time to transit to that area. If there's any concern of a, um, extravasation of contrast at that time, I would take them to the OR. Okay, so this is post up day seven when you kind of initiated, you kind of first saw him. And, uh, and so you placed that IR drain. You waited your five days. So now it's post-operative day number 12. And uh, you repeat the scan, and there's a little bit of contrast extravasation into a, uh, the drain. And the abscess is more like one centimeter now. Uh, the white count is 11. Exam is unchanged. But there is contrast extravasation. Would you take that patient has to go to the operating room, you're saying? I would take him to the operating room. Okay. Okay. So that, that scenario is done. You got to go to the OR, which I know you're excited to do in, in these scenarios. This is kind of, in my opinion, I tried to throw in one case that I consider to be more of kind of a perioperative care question related to colorectal surgery. You're more likely to get that in your trauma critical care room as opposed to the, the room that typically has colorectal questions. Um, some things that you did a good job on, you, uh, very linear. You uh, went to the bedside, you evaluated the patient, assessed whether they were toxic or not. Something style points wise, I probably would have set up front is I would review his past medical and surgical history as well as his operative report because it's not your patient and you weren't there. Um, that'll help you identify other contributors to the problem. Uh, post update three, a CT scan might help you, might not. I don't know uh, if I would have done that. I would have based it more on exam. I might have got an x-ray to see if he's got a bunch of free air or not. Um, as far as observation versus exploration up front, uh, I think really does depend on the patient's exam. If they're diffusely tender and they've got what seems to be progressive sepsis on the third post-operative day and they've got free air that's that's uh, prevalent, and exploration is a very safe answer, especially on a board exam. If you have a patient with a more equivocal exam, it's okay to just basically observe them and see which uh, route they choose over some sort of arbitrary amount of time. You can certainly re-explore these people laparoscopically. I think that's fine as long as you kind of uh, respond to the problem appropriately, which you did. Um, if you find a leak in the acute post-operative period that's large, like what you described, or what I described, 50% or more disruption, then that has to come down. Now, if it's a perfect scenario and the patient doesn't have much contamination, there's not a whole lot of associated surrounding inflammation, there are some patients where you can do a re-anastomosis and a uh, loop ileostomy. But in general, you're probably going to bring up an encolostomy. Um... What you described, then transverse colostomy, blind pouch, I just would, I just get a little cleaner with that. You know, what you're doing is you're bringing up an end colostomy, an end descending colostomy, because you're taking down your anastomosis. You're not bringing up some sort of random diversion above the anastomosis. The um, alternative is you may go in there and find a patient has more of a pinpoint leak or a definitive leak that you can see and repair. In that situation, it's very reasonable to repair the anastomosis uh, for smaller leaks and then bring up a diverting loop ileostomy proximal to that. Uh, don't be surprised if that patient goes on to develop a stricture through anastomosis. Uh, if that happens, a lot of times you can do balloon dilation or something like that endoscopically to treat it. Um, as far as management of the more kind of uh, insidious leak, the one that presents later on with an abscess. I think that it's very important that you know that the longer you go without doing an operation, the harder it gets. And so having some decision to go in five days later, if there's contrast extravasation, you're going to be met with a very hostile abdomen with the risk that you're going to cause a problem trying to fix a problem. You know, make an enterotomy, not be able to get down to the anastomosis itself deep in the pelvis, and so I think that in that scenario, 
you know, I honestly don't care if there's a leak or not, as long as it's controlled with the drain, you know, the contrast extravasation doesn't surprise me, you know, but if it's controlled and it goes out the drain and there's not a big progressive abscess and the patient has controlled sepsis, there's no evidence of ongoing infection, then I would not explore a patient just because there's a communication between the anastomosis and the drain. So I, I don't know, I probably wouldn't uh, chosen that answer, but I think I kind of pushed it in that direction a little bit too. So, so I would give you an equivocal in that scenario, um, depending on, uh, you know, if you changed a couple of things, it could have been a clear pass. And I have nothing to add other than practice makes perfect. And so the more often you guys do these exercises, the better you're going to be when the real time comes. Thank you. Great job to both of you. And thanks to all three of you for joining us today. Hopefully the audience will be um, well prepared to dominate the colorectal questions on board. Um, so good luck to everyone. And um, all of our uh, three participants today, their uh, Twitter handles will be in our show notes. So you can uh, reach out to them if you would like to. Until next time, dominate the day.